Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. to welcome you to turn thoughts to faith, not as a metaphysical concept, but as a scientific one. All the neurobiology of how this happens, how our thoughts literally create new neural pathways in our brains, and as we use those pathways more and more often, they get bigger and bigger, and then we develop a facility to actually process the kinds of information that we think about habitually. So those parts of our brains get larger and larger, literally reshape our brains over time. Studies, for example, the double slit experiment in which light is, is passed through a filter, and when it is observed by an observer, a human observer, it behaves as a particle. When it's not, it behaves as a wave. So all of these fascinating ways in which our own act of observation, our own consciousness, is literally changing molecular reality all around us. And eventually, of course, it will show up in some pretty profound and larger ways as we hold those visions and intentions over time. I've begun practicing synchronicities lately in my personal journey journal, and what I do is whenever I have a synchronicity, I write a big S on that page in the journal. And some of these are major, some are minor, but as I began to pay attention to them, it is so interesting to see how these have multiplied. And so I invite you to start to pay attention to these in your own life and realize how over time, many of your thoughts do become things. And when you realize that, you start to think intentionally. You start to think deliberately. You start to use your consciousness as a creative tool. You know that as you hold those thoughts, as you hold those intentions, as you stay in tune with that energy, that that will inevitably manifest as something in the external world. Pay attention to those small little signals you get from your feedback loop, and you're likely to find them multiplying. So that's our theme, how we turn thoughts into things. Again, not as a metaphysical concept so much as an actually scientific and practical one. My guest today is, is a guy who is a lot of fun. His name is Jonathan Robinson. He is a therapist. He's also the best-selling author of 10 books, and his newest book is called The Technology of Joy. He has appeared on The Oprah Show, on CNN, and other national talk shows, and also articles about him or his work have appeared in USA Today, Newsweek, the LA Times, and many other publications. I was reading his book, The Technology of Joy, and I'm reading the subtitle as well, because it's, it's well worth reviewing. The 101 Best App, Gadget, Tools, and Supplements for Feeling More Delight in Your Life. And he just gives you a really light-hearted overview of all of these possibilities for bringing more happiness into your life. I recommend the book. His website is FindingHappiness.com. Go to FindingHappiness.com for a sense of who he is, what he does, his book, and also information about his new book, The Technology of Joy. Jonathan, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. Well, you must have had a lot of fun. You could have had a lot of fun as you put together this list of 101 items. Well, you know, my friends actually told me to write the book because my uh, my house is like a museum of all these different gadgets and things, and friends are always coming over to get high legally because some of these gadgets and supplements are getting incredibly good, and this whole field of transformational technology is changing really every month 
now, so it's truly a fun uh, hobby to have. And you also stressed how it's one that you, as, as a hobbyist, as you try them out yourself, that some work for you, some does, and that process is pretty individualistic. It might work great for you. That same supplement may not work very well for somebody else. It's a process of trial and error and discovery and finding out which ones work uniquely well for you. Absolutely. You know what, keeping this field from becoming more mainstream is that different things work for different people. So you have to try out you know, a few supplements or a few gadgets and find the ones that really fit your world. If you do that, then you have a friend for life. And it's hard to tell because of their competing claims. Like, I know there's one conference that I, I, no, I no longer speak at. I spoke there for a few years, but it was a conference of naturopaths. As I walked through their exhibit hall, the exhibit hall was enormous, and the lectures weren't very well attended, but the exhibit hall was huge, and people were selling every conceivable kind of supplement, gadget, life extension, formula, and so on. And I looked around in vain for any solid science behind most of it. And a few, a few things, obviously, like HeartMath have mm-hmm. a really good track record of, um, of an evidence-based approach, but a lot of it is just marketing hype, and it, it's really hard to know if, if there's any any solid value to to these kinds of technologies that are promoted very heavily, and it's quite hard to pierce the veil of that hype and, and figure out what really is the merit of each one. How, how do you do that personally? Well, you know, that's really why I wrote the Technology of Joy book, is because there's so much out there, and, you know, let's figure 90% of it is crap, but 10% of it is really good, so you have to figure out which is good, which is not, and the book is really a review of my favorite 101 apps, gadgets, and supplements, and it's not just my personal experience. You know, I, I, I do a lot of seminars. I bring this stuff out to people, and I see how they respond. So this is really what people tend to respond to, and I not only tell people what they tend to respond to, but what these gadgets do. You know, some of them actually can give you, like, orgasmic levels of pleasure, whereas some of them are made to deepen relationships, or some of them are made to increase the meaning that you have in your life. So it depends on what people want. If people are looking for, say, something to uh, increase their endorphin levels to help them feel happier, there's, you know, 10 gadgets that do that. If they're looking for a way to deepen their relationships, there's a few apps I recommend. So I try to make it very specific to what people are looking for. Yeah, I was struck by the research on oxytocin and these oxytocin sprays that people mm-hmm. have been using and that there is some, there are several studies of these now and showing they do actually increase the level of bonding and trust people have after they use oxytocin spray. Yeah, yeah, and you know, uh, there's also this whole prop, uh, whole area called nootropic or cognitive enhancers, and maybe you've heard of them. It, it was not very good 10 years ago, and I just revisited it for the book, and I found that this field is exploding. It's now a several billion-dollar-a-year industry, and it's growing at 100% per year because some of these supplements are really good. They help you to stay very focused, and they help you to feel really good, and they cost like, you know, 30 cents a day. I know several of my clients who were using antidepressants and were depressed and found that these nootropics worked a lot better for them than antidepressants, and uh, it's it's pretty amazing what some of these things can do, but you have to try three or four of them to see which one really makes the makes your brain work the best. And I think that a point well worth making is that one size doesn't at all. In fact, in the book I wrote with Norm Sheely called Soul Medicine, we characterize that kind of claim, the one size fits all claim, the panacea claim, mm-hmm. as being characteristic of quackery and fraud, usually in healing, is that if anyone says my uh, method will is, is the best or my method works for everyone, that's usually a signal that they're, they're, they have inflated claims. And, and that, that's as true for conventional medicine as it is for alternative medicine and these 
kinds of supplements and nutritional supplements. So I think you really want to make sure that you, you need that advice and try things, see what works for you, what works for your unique metabolism, your your life state. There are so many factors that go into it that one size really doesn't at all. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I made sure I did with the book is that I do not sell any of these products or supplements. So I could be an impartial observer. You know, a lot of books are written by the people who are trying to push that product. And by being an impartial reviewer, I felt that I could better serve people and give them a sense of what is likely to work for their situation. Yes. Yeah, and technology then, is yes. advancing so much, but people have a certain skepticism because so far technology has pretty much created uh, WMDs, which, which I call widgets of mass distraction. And what we need is technology to actually help in our inner life, you know, our health, our spirituality, our ability to connect deeply with others. And it's only in the last two or three years that some good stuff has come come along, but most people don't know about it. So it's kind of exciting to turn people on to, you know, maybe a gadget that helps their relationships or a gadget that helps them to wake up feeling great in the morning. And I think that with technology advancing at the rate that it currently is, the whole fields of spirituality and psychology are going to be turned upside down in the next five years. I wonder how the old guard of psychology will take that. I know we've, I've been involved in a discussion within the American Psychological Association about changing the standards for evidence-based mm-hmm. therapies, and it's taken 20 years to get the discussion going, and mm-hmm. now there's a, a group very much dug in around the old methods, a group very much dug in around even more stringent old methods, and they will have nothing to do with things like the biological basis of, of psychological issues. So it's so interesting that, that there are these, if, if, there, there are a couple of great books, by the way. One's called, one's called Great Fuse in Medicine. The other's called Great Fuse in Science. And it's mm-hmm. all about these, these shifts, paradigm shifts in various professions and how there is usually an entrenched hierarchy of people who are dug in behind a certain technology or belief system or paradigm or worldview. And God forbid that there be any change and they, they're going to stay the way they are. So I, I wonder how uh, psychology will take that kind of, of advance. They'll resist it. Uh kicking and screaming, but the marketplace uh, doesn't really care what the psychologists think, they care what works. So things like virtual reality therapy is already on the market and showing to be as effective or more effective than regular therapy at one twentieth the price. Uh, there's things that have been shown to be more effective than antidepressants at one one hundredth the price. So when people are aware of these things and they try and the market is going to basically decide these things and I'm sure everybody with their vested interests will will go kicking and screaming, but eventually, when something works really well, people tend to learn about it. I wonder how regulators will respond to this, because you talked in the book about your early experiences with LSD and psilocybin, mm-hmm. and the, the federal government just put a blanket ban on that research, and only very recently began to allow researchers to, to study those substances again, even though they had real potential for people, especially people suffering from severe psychopathologies. So I, I wonder how, how do you suppose regulators will respond to this of new mind and mood-altering substances. You know, those things were banned, and now there's some pushback to try to make them available to psychiatrists because they do work in various situations. I think it takes a long time, but eventually what works wins out over the moneyed interest and the belief interest, and it, it can take a while. I'm not optimistic that that will happen very quickly, but, for example, with some of these supplements, which are considered safe, they're reaching a lot of people, you know, Caffeine is the number one drug in the world because it works. It wakes people 
up. But if you can find drugs that do that and actually make people feel euphoric at the same time and are proven healthy, then there's not much regulators can do. So there's, literally, I get sent a new gadget, a new supplement every two weeks now. That's how fast things are moving. And uh, I actually have a story about that real quickly. When I was 12, I had a uh, experience of being in a computer class in my high school with a guy named Steve. And our, our high school just bought this 500-pound computer that basically played tic-tac-toe and a couple other games. <laughs> well, this guy named Steve, he was kind of a pushy brat kind of guy, and he was always vying with me for the computer. He was older than me, but we were you know, both in this special class. And one day I turned to this guy named Steve, who ended up being Steve Jobs. But at the time, he wasn't Steve Jobs. He was just the pushy guy named Steve. <laughs> and so I said to Steve, why are you so obsessed with this machine? And he looked at me like I had said the stupidest thing in the world. And he said, don't you see? This machine is going to change everything. It's going to totally transform the world. Well, it was hard to see that this 500-pound refrigerator-sized computer that played tic-tac-toe is going to change the world. But exponential growth technology does get better and better very, very quickly. There's already some really mind-blowing gadgets out there that I use every day, and they're a lot of fun. And some of them are really helpful. But in a year or two, they're going to be twice as good, and two years after that, they're going to be ten times as good. So it may be hard to see that the latest neural stimulator or supplement or app is going to make a huge difference in humanity's trajectory, but I believe that that will happen. You mentioned, for example, advanced TENS machines, and even though TENS machines have been around for 50 years, they still require a doctor's prescription to get one, and Mm -hmm. it's just extraordinary how sometimes there is is such a freeze on the access to technology when regulation comes into play like that, and it's like that that balance between safety and availability is really a a tricky one to to achieve. Yeah, everybody has their turf, but there's so many things, you know, you can't regulate virtual reality therapy, you can't regulate neurostimulators now are FDA approved, uh, all these supplements that have been out there, they're already approved, so you can't roll back the clock very easily, and finding that some of the best stuff is going to cost you know, less than $5 and be available at Walmart soon. Wow, <laughs> what, what an exciting vision. So go ahead and just give us a sense what some of the categories are of happiness aids that you talk about in the book, The Technology of Joy. Well, you know, there's really five ingredients to happiness uh, for people who study it, and they they use the acronym PERMA, which stands for pleasure, for P, E for engagement, which is like losing yourself in an activity, R for relationships, M for meaning, and A for accomplishment. So different technologies do different things. I have a gadget that uh, 70% of the people who use it say that is more intense than an orgasm, and the gadget cost $5. So that gadget is doing quite well and is going to continue to do well. That increases pleasure, but pleasure is only one ingredient of happiness. Say the ability to lose yourself in an activity. You know, video games are very popular, but they're getting better and better and soon, and now there are video games that actually can help you overcome depression, help you overcome PTSD, help you uh, become less stressed. There's video games that allow you to change your brainwave state so 
that you have the same brainwave as a Zen meditator, and it only takes about two hours to get there versus the 20 years of being a Zen meditator. Now, they're expensive now, but the price is getting down about 50% every single year, so that's exciting. Then there's apps for helping people with relationships. There's one called Couple. There's one called Between, and they've been shown to deepen relationships, and, you know, apps cost a dollar or two, so when more people use those, that's going to feel good. And even gadgets to increase the meaning in your life, which sounds strange, but we have an epidemic of people not feeling in touch with a deeper spiritual meaning, and there are certain tools now that actually increase the level of depth and meaning in people's lives that work pretty consistently for most folks. How exactly do they work to do that? Well, for example, some of them change your brainwaves, and when you're in a deeper brainwave state, when your mind is quiet, you feel more meaning, or that's one way. Another way is by increasing the level of endorphins in your brain. When you feel good, you feel like your life is more meaningful. Another way is there's apps that focus and help you to feel more gratitude in your life, and when you feel more gratitude, you tend to feel like your life has more meaning. And then there's like reminders that help you to remember to do certain things that give your life more meaning. So there's a lot of different approaches, and not all approaches work for everybody, but if people put in a little bit of energy, they usually find something that you know, works really well. You know, uh, many years ago, I asked the Dalai Lama about all this stuff, what he about people using technology in this way, and he said, I'll quote, if it were possible to become free of negative emotions by an implementation of a gadget without impairing the critical mind, I would be the first patient. Yeah, let's bring it on. Let's see what we can do with this stuff. It's, it's going to be an exciting uh, few years. That's fun. So you mentioned that you wrote the book, Jonathan, because your friends were walking around your house looking at your museum of gadgets and saying, why did you write this book? And then, of course, that was the idea. And now I'm holding my hand and I had a lot of, lot of joy actually reading the book. I'd love to hear more stories from you about this whole process of turning thoughts things, how thoughts do turn to things, sometimes in really unexpected ways. I'd love to hear a few stories from your life about how you found this progression from having an idea to maybe a really striking or unusual material manifestation. Sure. You know, one of the good things about these technologies is that experience is going to become more clear when you, when you can wear something that gives you a readout of how your thoughts are affecting your heart, your blood pressure, everything like that. People will make that connection more clearly. Right now we need stories, but when technology shows you that in real time, I think people are going to be more aware of how their thoughts affect not just their health, but also their relationships and everything else. But I was uh, very fortunate in that when I was younger, I had some pretty unusual experiences. Today I was meditating and I asked, how can I be of service? And I heard a voice say, take notes. So I took notes, you know, and out came a couple good questions. I was just writing down what this voice said to me. I'll make a long story short, I didn't know what to do with it, so I asked, what do I do with this? And they said, well, it's a book. So I, I sent this to one publisher. I didn't know, I'd never written anything before. Sent it to one publisher. They said that we love the idea. They, they uh, made it into the book, and this was a miracle. Somehow, Oprah got hold of the book. We don't know how, because the book wasn't even published yet. And she devoted two shows to the book. So uh, it went from me taking notes to a book to Oprah to bestsellers in about seven months. And I had never even written anything before. So that's the power of, of turning a, a thought energized by a source 
dollars into something that manifests in the world. Wow. What a remarkable thing. And of course, the critical element there is that we play our part. If you hadn't taken action on that voice that said, take notes, then you wouldn't have set in motion that whole chain of events that resulted in being on Oprah, those two shows, and it being a bestseller. I know, Jonathan, so many of us talk ourselves out of our intuition. And so we hear the voice. I think everybody is hearing the voice. So we'll these are the voices speaking to people, whether or not they're tuning into it or not. Mm-hmm. And yet, most of us say, well, you know, I'll do it after I retire. I'll do it. I'm too, I'm too tired now. I think I'll watch TV instead. There are all kinds of great things we do that ignore that. But in my personal experience, I know when the muse comes, drop everything and start writing. I agree. You know, even if it didn't translate into something in the world, just listening to that voice feels good. And and that, that's a win right there. So I think the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And it's always fun to listen to your muse because it's a highly energized experience. And I found that a lot of the times when I listen to my muse, miracles have happened that really couldn't be explained. And that's even more fun. Yes. And you don't see all of the connections in terms of cause and effect and where the path will take you. But you take one step and then the next step becomes apparent, then the next step. And you look back and you see how all of these these chain together to create this spectacular outcome, but you did not see that at the beginning of the process. Yeah, I think of the universe as a, as a big hot and cold game. Remember the hot and cold game you may have played as a kid yes. where you hide something and somebody tells you if you're getting warmer or cooler? Remember that game? Yes. Yeah, so imagine, you know, God of the universe is playing that game with us. So if you don't do anything, it's not telling you if you're getting warmer or cooler, but if you're acting on your intuition, it gives you feedback. It says, oh, you know, if something's boring and you're not getting any results, that's the universe saying, you're crazy. You know, you should do something different. Whereas if you act on your intuition, it goes well, it feels good. That's the universe saying you're red hot. Keep going in that direction. So that's how I've, I've written all these books. I just listen for the internal and external message as to whether I'm getting warmer or cooler. And that tells me what the next step is. What happens when you get a message, you take a step, you feel as though it's hot, and then it ends in disaster? That's uh, when you gain a mixed message and you have to take another step to find the next, the next data point. And that doesn't happen that often, but it does happen occasionally. And, you know, if you have five dots on a, on a white paper, you don't really know what it is. If you have a thousand dots, you can say that's an elephant. So the more data points you have, the more action you take, the more data points you get, the more feedback you get, and things become clear. So the few times I've gotten mixed messages, I say, well, I'll try to take another step and see if it becomes more clear. So just taking the next step often will start to make sense of all the previous steps. Right, right. There was a time where, you know, I was told to do a video on a subject I didn't know anything about, and it was all hard, but internally it felt great. Well, it was a matter of timing. Eventually, I did make the video two years later, and it ended up becoming a major success. But the hardness was probably, looking back, that I was doing it at the wrong time. I just needed to slow down. You know, you can only see that in retrospect. So, you know, doing the hot and cold game, listening for what feels right, listening to the results you're getting has served me well, including with this book. You know, I kept on having people tell me, hey, can you write about a book about this? Because we need it. And I kept on saying, I don't got time. And, and finally, a friend of mine said, look, I need this book right now. So, you know, let's do it. 
you know, and if you don't do it, I will. And that got me going, and, and the timing has been great because this field has taken off now. Mm, so you found yourself right ahead of the curve because you followed that impulse. Yeah, yeah. And and followed the, the feedback I was getting from my friends saying they really wanted it. So there are some people, though, that seem to habitually follow their dreams. Jonathan, I met somebody last week, and this woman was a pretty elderly Mexican immigrant, and her husband had died. She got some money. She had then bought a house and remodeled it and then lost it in the crash of 2007, mm-hmm. 2008. And so now, just many, many years later, she's, she's rebuilding her life. And, but she has told the story, I could tell, that she, she followed her dream, and of course, it had been shattered, as it has for so many other, other people in the same way. What do you say to people like that who do follow their intentions, their, their visions, their dreams, and it turns out badly for them? Well, a couple of things. One is it's always good to have a trusted friend who can give you feedback as well, because, you know, listening to one's inner guidance is a skill. It's not a science, and over time you get better at it, but I always give the possibility that I might be misguided, and I have friends who sometimes say, hey, you know, that looks a little crazy to me. So that has helped me at times. The other thing is, you know, people in America are always invested in this idea of external success, and for me, the real key is internal success. You know, how happy are you? How much depth do you have? How much love do you have? How much peace do you have? And I think the overemphasis on, you know, getting your dream house or your book done or this and that is a little off base when we make that the focus of our lives. You know, so the questions I tend to ask are things like, how can I be even happier in my life? How can I be more loving? Or who can I uh, be more supportive of? That Those questions tend to steer you in a, in a right direction. And when your internal world is going well, when you feel peace, when you feel love, I find that the externals also tend to go better as well. So I try not to put too much emphasis on, you know, inner guidance, please tell me how to make a million dollars. I think that's already starting to be off course. Yeah, and I, my own uh, way of seeing that, Jonathan, is that if you've got inner alignment in place, if you're living a passionate life that is in complete alignment with your soul purpose, then you're a success. And then there might be external triumphs and disasters, bumps in the road, heady moments of, uh, of reaching the pinnacle of some date or accomplishment you desire. And yet that's just to see the passing parade, who you really are, anchored in your soul purpose. That That is your true success. So I, I, I love that way of seeing it because when you define success that way, then you're much less attached to, to what happens in the other sense. Yeah, well, there's a research uh, from a group called the Spindrift Research Organization that showed that the most effective prayer for actually helping plants to grow is the prayer, let thy will be done. You know, so they had some people pray, hey, plant, please grow quickly, and hey, plant, please grow beautifully. And then they had some people pray, plant, let thy will be done. And when we surrender to a higher power, I think that makes things in the external world go well, but it also gives us peace. So in general, my prayers have been in that direction, and I think that those prayers are actually quite effective. Yeah, so they also remove the win-lose thinking that can make us unhappy if we don't get something and happy if we get it. So right, we're detaching right. our inner state, our inner happiness, the reliance on outer phenomena to create it, and we're pulling back our power into ourselves by taking the kind of step. Yes, absolutely. Any kind of a prayer. So what are some of the ways people can tune in to their guidance? Well, there's everything from meditation to prayer, and now, you know, in, in the technology of joy book, I talk about maybe dozens 
in technological ways to quiet your mind, I think that's the first key step, to have your mind be quiet and focused. That might involve audio soundscape with vinyl beats. It might involve a neural stimulator. It might involve a mantra. It might involve one of a number of things. But always getting a quiet mind is the first step. The second step is sincerity, that you will, you really have, are willing to let go of your agenda and listen. And that's hard. You know, should I be in this relationship? I really, really, really want this relationship. Well, but if you all listen to intuition, you have to let go of either answer and be okay with either answer. And the third step is to ask the right question. You know, what do I need to know to be happier? What do I need to know about this situation? What would bring me joy here? What would be a way I can be of service in this situation? Those types of questions, if you ask them with sincerity and a quiet mind, you get that quiet mind, you'll get good answers. Yes, yes. And as well as quieting your mind, you mentioned earlier that practice makes it easier. So if you develop a practice of quieting your mind regularly, you're much more likely to hear that inner voice and be alert to your own guidance. It's just like a muscle. If we develop that muscle over time, it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think the ability to listen, tune in like that becomes stronger the more you use it. Yeah, your mind actually says, oh, okay, now it's time to meditate. Okay, I'll, I'll give him an hour. I'll give him half an hour. You know, so I have a pretty active mind, but when I meditate, I've been meditating for 40 years. It, it's very quiet. And it's learning, okay, you know, I'll, we'll give him an hour and, and uh, that seems to work. It's kind of like a, a child that learns something after a while. And I think rituals of quieting, whether it be walking in nature or meditation or using some kind of gadget that you find a, you know, if you look at the word spiritual, it has the word spirit ritual in it. And I think everybody needs to come up with rituals that work for them that allow them to tap into their deeper intuition. Yes, and those rituals are unique to us and we can find ones that work for us. And the only thing to be aware of is to actually do them, to, to do them regularly, make them part of your life, yeah. rather than just something that you fall apart in times of crisis. I know there's a saying, many, many, probably a century old, saying that there are no atheists in fuckholes. <laughs> and often in times of crisis, people do say, oh, you've died me, where are you? Where's the universe now? And so the universe might be there for you in those times. And yet, why wait till you're in crisis before you are? Why not be tuning in to that sweet music every day and really developing a fluent ear for listening for its messages and then for aligning yourself with what it has to offer you? Yeah, for me, it's like brushing my teeth. I don't just brush my teeth and my teeth hurt. I brush them every day because that's part of being a, a peaceful, healthy human being in today's crazy age. And now more than ever, if you don't have some ritual for getting back to peace, then you're in trouble. And, you know, the average American watches four and a half hours of TV a day, and that's not helping. I watch none, which means that some guy in Iowa has to watch nine hours a day for me. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I turn on the TV in my hotel so he can step outside for a few minutes. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy how much TV we watch, and, and really... What we're wanting is peace, and all this external stimulation doesn't really provide the happiness that we're looking for. I remember being in Jacksonville, Florida once and seeing a lady at the bar, and she was drinking a cocktail and staring at the TV. Just her whole attention was on the TV, and she looked kind of uh, lost and depressed and lonely, bored, a whole bunch of different things that I walked in. Seeing her cocktail, looking at the TV, I thought to myself, my dear soul angel, you are not going to find anything worthwhile in either that, that cocktail or that TV right, that's not the right. place to look for the answers. Now, in one of your books, Jonathan, you got to interview some of the most remarkable change agents on the planet. People like Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Deepak Chopra, and so on. I'd 
love to hear the story of how that came to be, how that went from a thought to a thing, and also the stories were told to you in the course of doing that book of the miracles that they had witnessed and experienced. Sure. Well, the way the book came about is I called a friend and I said, I, this is an age of answering machines, and I said, what are you doing home? And she said, God told me to stay home today. I said, really? How'd you know it was God? And yeah, I kept on asking her these questions, and I found it interesting what she had to say. I said, you know, it'd be really interesting to talk to the world's leaders, spiritual leaders, and find out how they experience God and how they turn into God. So that's how the book started. And I got to meet, you know, a lot of gurus, a lot of spiritual teachers, and it was a tremendous fun. And one of the questions I would ask, and this is a great question to ask anybody, is what's the most miraculous thing you've ever experienced? And I found that even atheist friends of mine had experienced some wild stuff. And it's a really fun question to ask, especially of, you know, people like, you know, Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa, and they had their stories. But I thought I would share one story that happened to me, which, which had a big impact on me. Uh, there was a spiritual teacher named Sai Baba in India, a very famous guru, who supposedly could manifest things out of thin air. And I was skeptical about this, but I wanted to see him, so I went to his ashram. Now, something you don't know about me is I'm a, a amateur magician, so I do magic shows. I know how, how mag magicians do stuff. I'm at his ashram, and as he walks by, there's like 40,000 people there. As he walks by me, he puts his hand five inches from my face and starts manifesting ashes, which is one of the things he does. And I look to see if he's doing it the way a magician's doing it, and he's not. So he's manifesting lots of ashes, like cupfuls of ashes. And then he looks at me. He doesn't really speak English normally, but he looks at me and he says, Satisfied, magic man? <laughs> Love it. Wow. I said, oh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm satisfied. That was pretty good. You know, so uh, that was impressive. But, you know, I, I've had all kinds of things happen where I've said, hey, you know, if you want me to do this job, I don't have any money now. I would need 5000 bucks to do it. So if you want me to do this job, send me 5000 bucks. And then four days later, 5000 bucks shows up in my P.O. box from my aunt who said, when your grandma died five years ago, she said to send this to you when I thought the time was right. You know, that, that's, that, that doesn't make any sense, but that seemed to work. Um, but I want to tell you a story about one other miracle. For me, miracle happened because it had a certain subtlety to it, and I think people could really benefit from it. And I was visiting this guru in India. A friend of mine had told me that a guru in India had given him a magical mantra to help him feel overwhelming gratitude. Well, when I interviewed all these spiritual leaders, the number one method people said helped them to tune into God was tuning into gratitude. So I was really focused on gratitude. And so I traveled all the way to India to get this magical mantra. Have you been to Indian, uh, India, Dawson? No, I haven't. It's a hard place to get to. It's, you know, it's 18,000 miles away. And then once you're there, it's like 120 degrees. And you have to take a rickshaw for hours to get through the traffic. Did that. And then I had to wait seven hours to meet the guru. I'm in line the whole time. I'm jet lagged and worn out. But I really want to get this magical mantra for feeling gratitude. Cause I know that's really <laughs> the key. But so you want to meet this guy. Hmm. And I say, Guruji, you know, my friend told me you have this magical mantra for feeling gratitude. And he says, Oh, yes, my mantra is the most powerful mantra on earth. And then he leads him to whisper into my ear because he didn't want other people to hear it. And he says, uh, Whenever possible, repeat the following words. The mantra I give you are the words, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I look at him and I say, 
that's it. And he looks at me straight and he says, no, 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 no. That's it. If the mantra you have been using, that makes you feel like you never have enough. My mantra is thank you, not that's it. That's what will take you nowhere. Oh, <laughs> uh, so funny. Well, then thank you. I'm pissed off. And he said, no, thank you is not the mantra. The mantra you must say it many times a day from your heart. So when you eat good food, say thank you. When you see your child or a sunset or your pet, say thank you from your heart. And soon you will be filled with gratitude. Well, I was still pissed off and disappointed, but I figured I'd use what he said. So I left the ashram, I entered a taxi, and the taxi was air conditioning. It's 120 degrees out, so I say from my heart, oh, thank you for this air conditioning. And then, you know, I get to my hotel, and I realize I have money to pay the taxi driver. Thank you for this money. I enter my hotel, you know, thank you for the clean water that they left. Thank you for the, you know, western toilets that they had. I just kept really from my heart saying, you know, I open up my laptop, thank you. I talked to my wife on Skype. But within half an hour, I had tears of gratitude going down my face. And really, it's the little things in life where we appreciate what we have that leads to miracles as far as I'm concerned. Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing that story, which all of us can take heart and pride for sharing your wisdom about these practical tools to attaining and enhancing happiness. Thank you again. My pleasure, Dawson. Thank you for having me. Jonathan's website again is findinghappiness.com. Thank you ever so much again, and be happy and healthy. 